Abolition. 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 The 13th Amendment has that exception clause that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States. And it's within that loophole of the exception clause that allowed states to then make someone what became known as a slave of the state, as the Virginia decision Ruffin v. Commonwealth declared in 1871 that a convicted felon is for the time being a slave of the state. He is civilly dead, and his estate, if he has any, is administered like that of a dead man. And out of that came a whole series of laws that accelerated the criminal justice system. So, for instance, a minor theft, uh, like picking a strawberry, for instance, something that was kind of um, open and common uh, during the system of enslavement, where slaves lived in an agricultural space where they might have access to some of the agricultural goods and products of the plantation. So picking a strawberry in that context might not create punishment. But in this moment of emancipation, picking that same strawberry could land them into the system of convict leasing. It's important to understand that convict leasing was initiated almost immediately after emancipation. It traversed the moment of enslavement to freedom and then re-enslavement through the criminal justice system. Because the system was so potentially profitable and revolutionary for modernizing the South, there was an effort to look for any opportunity to re-enslave or re-coerce black labor. We can look at the black codes, for instance, passed immediately after emancipation. These restricted African-American people's access and rights to own property, conduct business, buy and lease land, or move freely through public space, because public space itself was criminalized. And that was a contentious space because the first thing that people who had been enslaved wanted to do was to reclaim their mobility, to move off the plantation where they had been. But planters were very interested in securing their labor through labor contracts. And if one didn't sign those labor contracts, that might get one a prison sentence. And that prison sentence would be then leased to these private companies. Vagrancy laws criminalized public space and any African-American man out of work, for instance, uh, or failure to pay a tax could be counted as vagrancy. Other laws included things like loud talk in a public place, engaging in sexual activity, or riding a freight car without a ticket, challenging employers without permission. If you don't mind, I'm just going to read a little bit of this Mississippi Black Code. That all freed men, free Negroes and mulattoes in this state over the age of 18 years found on the second Monday in January 1866 or thereafter without lawful employment or business or 
found unlawfully assembling themselves together, either in the day or night, and all white persons assembling themselves with freedmen, free Negroes, or mulattoes, shall be deemed vagrants, and on conviction shall be fined. And in the case of a freedman, free Negro, or mulatto, $50, a white man, $200. What's going on in this black code? One, they're criminalizing the idea of vagrancy, which simply means being in public space or moving in public space. They're also criminalizing the association of white folks and black folks in that public space. And so that is one of those examples of how this criminality worked. Another that's often cited is what's known as the pig law, passed in 1866 in Mississippi. And this redefined grand larceny offenses that had previously been minor misdemeanors, punishable now by five years, to include minor theft of a farm animal or any property uh, valued at $10 or more. This pig law had a particular effect. Arrest quadrupled from 272 in 1874 to 1,072 in 1877. So it lengthened the stay of someone in the convict lease system and made more severe the penalty. But in practice, these laws that were passed about loud talk, engaging in sexual activity, abrogating a lifetime labor contract, riding a freight car without a ticket, how they were practiced and how they were policed was targeted and focused on the black community with the knowledge that incarcerating someone who was African-American, one, meant that you had cheap labor for the convict lease system, but two, it also meant that the criminal justice system itself, through the process of criminalization and through the laws itself, was upholding the creation of the Jim Crow white supremacist space of racial oppression. Abolition. 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 You just heard Dr. Robert Chase, Associate Professor of History at Stony Brook University, criminalizing blackness, accompanied by Winston Marsalis, Black Codes. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms. My name is Yusuf Hassan, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Uh, peace, Yusuf. I'm here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina, as always, streaming live. And yeah. looking forward to today's uh, episode. Oh, yeah. South Carolina is going to play heavily in tonight's episode. So last week we showed... We uh, continue to show you how the whole damn system is guilty as hell. 
by focusing on the issue of modern slave catchers, a.k.a. the police, the incentivization of incarceration, police arrest quotas, jails, fines, fees, and the other inhuman brutality that results from such a predatory system built on hunting human beings. We highlighted the Tyree Nichols case, and we explained how black cops could be part and parcel of a racist neo-slavery system against people who look just like them. This week we'll share history and we'll make history in one night. In South Carolina at the Capitol building on June 27, 2015, Thomas Washington, Tribal Rain, and Max Parthas, hey, I know them, recorded the reading of a, I, do, I Denounce the So-Called Emancipation as a Stupendous Fraud by Frederick Douglass, uh, issued on August, I'm sorry, April 17, 1888. This will be a nine-part series, but you're going to hear most of it tonight. They are powerful, eye-opening, and moving presentations that can be used for educational purposes with students, viewing and conversation with friends or family, or just show someone the truth. On a historical level, the readings were done on June 27th at the South Carolina State House African American History Memorial. The day after, Reverend and State Senator Clementa Pinckney, one of the nine victims in the June 17, 2015 shooting at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, lay in state at the Capitol with his body having to pass under the rebel flag. This was the same day and same place Bree Newsom cut the Confederate flag down just yards away. The moment where we recorded is one of the few in America dedicated the to the history of I'm sorry. The, <laughs> the monument, monument yeah. where we rec- Yeah, the monument where we recorded is one of the few in America dedicated to the history of the African diaspora. In the center of the display is a marble daze with the four stones of the four African nations where enslaved peoples in South Carolina originated, a direct connection to those ancestral lands. Our intention was to speak to the state and the nation using not our words, but those of a man who was arguably the greatest statesman we've ever known. His words rung true today. His words ring true today, a sad truth that most have never heard, hidden and muted on purpose because it didn't fit the false narrative. The productions include news clips of current events, or current events at the time of the recording, which drive all of his points home like a prophet. This week, the whole episode is the Bridging the Gap segment. Mm -hmm. And during this Black History Month of 2023, we will play the denouncement series on abolition today for the first time in its entirety. So before we jump into tonight's topic, Max, tell us about all the things that went down this week. Well, first I want to give a shout-out to uh, uh, Dr. Robert Chase, um, he's a good friend. He's been a, a guest here on our program. He and I have mm-hmm. spent hours and hours discussing. Uh, and from what he tells me, I've been a big influence on his understanding of this system of slavery today. And you can catch his book, We Are Not Slaves, State Violence, Coerced Labor, and Prisoners' Rights in Postwar America by Robert T. Chase at any bookseller, Amazon, for instance. So look that up. We are not 
Yeah, Please. thanks for bringing that up because I, I forgot yeah. to include his book in there. Right. There's a couple of things he said in there that stood out for me. You know, when he mentioned Negroes and mulattoes in the pig laws and the black code, and it wasn't just there, but that's the terms mm-hmm. they used for us. That's we, if we were two different things, Negroes and mulattoes. But, you know, right. we're the living people right now who have Negro or mulatto on their birth certificates are the last Negroes and mulattoes on earth. That's all they have done to those two entities. Now they are disappearing without anybody ever paying for anything that was done to them. And that's mm. that's kind of messed up. I am literally one of the last Negroes on earth. My birth certificate says Negro. Uh, and there right. are no new Negroes being born. No new ones are coming out. Nobody's calling their kids Negroes on their race. You know, so right. we're it. When we're gone, the Negro and the mulatto will be no more. Um. He also mentioned about, you know, criminalizing moving in public spaces, and that's what mm-hmm. we see a lot of right now. That's what we're facing right now. It's the same playbook. So I just wanted to give that info. As far as the week has been concerned, it's been pretty exciting, man. Um, I just did a panel discussion uh, a couple of days ago with Freedom United, as we had been telling you we were going to do. Um, mm-hmm. It featured myself, Dorsey Nunn, uh, Sean Kyler. And uh, we discussed the question, did the 13th Amendment really abolish slavery? Uh, it was a very brisk uh, conversation. But, you know, they were talking about prison labor, and I immediately switched gears on them. You know what I mean? Like, we, why are we right. just talking about this one aspect as if all the rest is okay? And it's not okay. Um, so, you know, there is uh, the warehousing of bodies. There's the slave catchers out hunting you legally under these laws there's the um, mm-hmm. incentivization of incarceration there's debtor prisons uh there's just so many aspects of this and i'm just talking about like the most basic if you go in deep you'll see a lot of the aspects of chattel slavery with the force uh sex for instance in places like tutwiler's prison women's prison right. in alabama and in new jersey you know where they're, at, where at they're the being raped game. and abused right. Same thing with the men mm-hmm. with the buck breaking going on in the prisons and stuff like that. So, you know, you just see all the parts of it there. It was a very powerful presentation. I seem to be a favorite of the crowd as well as the host. Shout out to uh, Kendra, uh, who mm-hmm. was the host of the program and her team. Uh, when I went to look at Twitter later on, it was like they were just, I was trending for a short time. They was just you know, posting quotes of things that I was saying. Quotes of Max Martin, exactly. All up and down the uh, Twitter feed. Yeah, because I brought a different perspective uh, than they're used to hearing, a more clear, concise perspective that uh, puts all the pieces together in a simple way. Um, And I think that was well-received. At one point, I explained why I don't use the term mass incarceration to describe what we're dealing with. And the host was like, mm-hmm. you know, Max, you're right. I'm not going to call it mass incarceration either anymore. You know, you were there, actually. Right. You said, what, what, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, that that was my impression as well. You know, I saw the conversation shift around a lot. But uh, when it got to down to the nitty gritty of things, the host and definitely Sean, you know, the, the other gentleman that was there, uh, they were all in. You know, I, I saw you uh, get get a few more mentees, you know, <laughs> that have come along and they say, you know what, Max is right. And 
anybody that really looks into this, they're going to have to get to a point where they're like, Max is right. That was my first experience with you. Like, okay, yeah, Max is right. <laughs> so you have a way of doing that with people. And you no. know, I was seeing the conversation in the in in the chat, and it just came to that point where people had to just like accept it. That's why I like telling the truth because it don't take a lot. Lying takes all right. these different things that make up and create. But you touched my heart a moment ago when you said, you know, people are gonna start saying Max is right. Uh, Tavis Brunson, uh, brother of mine, we, you know how close I was to Tavis Brunson. He passed sure. away a few years back, about to, not long after we have done this uh, event in Columbia. Um, and mm-hmm. he wrote a book of poetry. And about a year ago, I looked at the back of the book, and he had written it. One day, Max, people will know that you were right. <laughs> I, I didn't know it until after he mm. passed that he wrote that. So, wow. yeah. Um, it just says how long I've been at this trying to say. You know, I was, for a long time, there was only a few of us out there who dared even say, say things like this, but we kept saying mm-hmm. it, and others joined us, like Yusuf and Savannah and now Bali Slavery National Network and many, many more, because it was true. Like, how can you deny the truth? It's right there in the Constitution. If You can't get it any right. simpler than that. So that happened, and um, we just passed a couple memorable days, which went uncelebrated mm-hmm. by the United States, not surprisingly so. Not surprising. Uh, on the 31st of January, uh, that was the day that the U.S. Congress passed the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which prevented individuals from owning people in the United States and sent it to the states for ratification. Uh, you know, it came with a devious, well-thought-out caveat, as Dr. Chase has explained, which allowed the government mm-hmm. to instead own human beings through criminal convictions. And then on the 1st of February, the first day of Black History Month, that was the day that it was formally abolished for individuals and approved on February 1st, 1865. A hundred years later, that day became known as National Freedom Day. You know, if you realized at the time that this amendment would usher in a new system of slavery described by many historians, such as Dr. Chase, as worse than slavery, the era of convict leasing where local, state, and federal prisons fed by a racist justice system would be the new slave owners. So that's another thing. And then, of course, today is a birthday of Trayvon Martin. He'd have been 28 right. years old today, right? Uh, killed when right. he was, what, 17 years old? Yeah, 17 years old, right. Man, would have been down a hell of a road. You know what I'm saying? Uh, when and, we get this and that's speech, why tonight's... Right. No, you go. Go ahead. You go. When we did this speech, I was just going to say tonight. <laughs> you go, Max. I'm out of you. Down, All right. You go. All right, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Uh, when we did this speech that you'll hear today, we were the first to ever record it on video or even audio. Um, it hadn't been recorded on anything. It had been print at uh, History is a Weapon and a few other places in obscure locations. Nobody really knew about this speech, which was his most important speech. And when it went down, there was just so much happening in the black community. We had just endured the Trayvon Martin trial in 13, and then it was Michael Brown in 14, and then in 15 it was the Charles Nine and Walter Scott in South Carolina, and that was all while the freaking Confederate flag was flying at the capital of the South. <laughs> and Columbia, South Carolina had been doing it for decades. 
and uh, we fought hard to get that flag to come down. I know people call it symbolic, but you wouldn't call it symbolic if you had to walk under it and be reminded of your place by the state itself and that what they were about and who they really supported. Um, it was for us a very important day when it came down. So I just wanted to say that. You might be on mute. I don't even know how I muted myself, but I was just going to say that everything that you had said prior to that was leading right into tonight's topic, so it's just very appropriate. And, you know, everyone's lining up. They want to hear this speech. It's never been recorded before in its entirety, and mm -hmm. we're going to get through a large portion of it this week. So without yep. further ado, let's get into I Declare – the so-called Emancipation Proclamation, a stupendous fraud. This is going to be the intro by Max and Tribal at the Columbia State House African American History Memorial. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. Peace. My name is Max Barber. I'm here at Columbia, South Carolina at the African American Monument, and it's the day of the Confederate flag coming down just a few short hours from now. It's been a series of things that we've done here, and I'm here to tell you about the series, the video series you're about to view called I Denounce This So-Called Emancipation and Stupendous Fraud. And it was written by Frederick Douglass, and it was read at Washington in uh, 1888. It's one of those things that you've never heard of, and it was information that I would say was hidden. But his words were like prophecy. And myself, Thomas uh, the Younger, and Tribal Rain tried to bring his words to life in video fashion by reading them to you and showing you in current events what he meant and what he prophesied that he would see. It's an amazing experience. I literally feel like I leveled up just being a part of it. And over the time, so many things have happened that have shown that this is probably the most important video that I've ever created or been a part of. On the day that we recorded it, Bree Newsom was just a few yards away from here cutting down the flag on that very day. A few days later, we were accosted here by the police uh, and were victims of racism in a video that went viral. And here we are today, again, with the Confederate flag, a historical moment, about to come down in just a few short hours. Uh, this video is very important. It's hugely important. I can't express it enough. You'll find out things you never even realize. And it's like listening to a prophet tell you not only what's going to happen, but what is happening. You'll see from his words the reflection of what's happening today, right here, not only in Columbia, South Carolina, but across the United States of America. And you'll understand the plight that we face and how, as abolitionists, we keep telling you that slavery never ended. Maybe Frederick Douglass's words will move you because what he said is not the picture that you've been taught. It's not the Frederick Douglass that you've always learned about in school. He was so happy about the emancipation. Just a few, a couple of decades later, he went across Georgia and he went across South Carolina and North Carolina and he saw for himself what was happening then. And he told the whole world. And here we are, 125 years later, doing the exact same thing, telling the whole world that slavery never ended and that even your hero 
Frederick Douglass denounced this so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud. Enjoy. Abolition. 
Welcome back to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. You just heard the intro portion of I Declared the So-Called Emancipation Proclamation a Stupendous Fraud. That intro was by Max and Tribal at the Columbia State House African American History Memorial. And you heard several different news clips in there. And, well, one, yeah. You know, that was, yeah. You just heard the one. That was the uh, actual auction of a that prison. That was crazy. The clip from Immigrants for Sale. Uh, it's the actual auction of a prison where you heard them saying that the reason that this prison is valuable is because there's always going to be a steady supply of people coming into here yeah. to do whatever you need them to do, whatever product, whatever service you got. It's going to be a steady supply. Right of people through this prison. That's modern day society. So it was a direct connection to what he had just said. This is what they set up for us then. And here it is now. And at that time it was 2015. Um, yeah. Wow. You know, we could talk all night just on that one little clip there. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the board of all the stuff that we have that's coming along. Uh, I'd suggest, you know, people go get a pen and paper, you know, so they can take some notes because it's a lot of stuff that you're going to hear and then, you know, ha- you know, hearing the connections to how it applies now. Remember, this speech was given in 1888, you know, so 23 years after the – 26, right? Yeah, t- something like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> when after the uh, the – the passing of the 13th Amendment. And, yeah, yeah. for those who think Frederick was so happy about it, now you'll understand why he wasn't, you know, because you're going to hear what he was seeing. Nearly three decades after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, this was his final understanding of what had happened and what he saw with his own eyes. And you heard that the tribe explained, reading from the narrations, that here was the old Frederick Douglass. This was the one that was so fiery on the, you know, speaking about the issue of ending slavery and why? Because it never ended. Like, he, he, can right. you imagine how you must have felt? Like, I did everything. People died for this. I sent my people to war for this, to end this, and this is what you did. Yeah. Right. Play this. We'll be taking calls throughout tonight if you want to chime in on what you heard. We just ask that you keep your questions and comments as brief as you can because we do have an itinerary tonight to try to get through as many of these as we can. We'll be playing the first part with Tribal and myself introduction, and then the rest is going to be me reading the first sections. And then next week we'll come back and Thomas Washington will read the second part of these. I have to apologize for some of the background noise, but this was outside. And in the intro specifically, it was 1 o'clock in the morning. The tribal and I was there the day the flag came down. Um, so if, 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 if you can't really hear it well enough, just turn it up a little bit, okay? Yes, yes right. So let's jump into part one. This is Max, and this is entitled Mississippi Prison Scandal. Abolition. Abolition. Oh, 
on the occasion of the 26th anniversary of emancipation of, in the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., April 16, 1888. <clears throat> Friends and fellow citizens, it has been my privilege to assist in several anniversary celebrations of the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia, but I remember no occasion of this kind when I felt a deeper solitude for the future welfare of our emancipated people than that. The chief cause of anxiety is not in the condition of colored people in, of the District of Columbia, though there is much that is wrong and unsatisfactory here, but the deplorable condition of the Negro in the southern states. At no time since the abolition of slavery has there been more cause for alarm on this account than at this juncture in our history. I have recently been in two of the southern states, South Carolina and Georgia, and my impression from what I saw, heard, and learned there is not favorable to my hopes for the race. I know this is a sad message to bring you on this 26th anniversary of freedom in the District of Columbia, but I know too that I have a duty to perform, and that duty is to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I should be unworthy to stand here, unworthy of the confidence of the colored people of this country. If I should from any considerations of policy withhold any fact or feature of the condition of the freed men which the people of this country ought to know. The temptation on anniversary occasions like this is to prophesy, prophesy smooth things, to be joyful and glad, to indulge in the illusions of hope, to bring glad tidings on our tongues and words of peace reveal. But while I know it is always easier to be the bearer of glad tidings than sad ones, while I know that hope is a powerful motive to exertion and high endeavor, while I know that people generally would rather look upon the bright side of their condition than to know the worst, there comes a time when it is best that the worst should be made known. And in my judgment, that time, in respect to the condition of the colored people of the South, is now. There are times when neither hope nor fear should be allowed to control our speech. Cry aloud, and spare not is the word of wisdom as well as of scripture. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Applies to the body, not less than the soul. To this world, not less than the world to come. Outside the truth there is no solid foundation for any of us. And I assume that you who have invited me to speak, and you who have come to hear me speak, expect me to speak truth as I understand truth. The truth at which we should get on this occasion respects the precise relation subsisting between the white and colored people of the South, or in other words, between the colored people and the old master class of the South. We have need to know this and to take it to heart. It is well said that a people may lose its liberty in a day and not miss it in half a century, and that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. In my judgment, with my knowledge, of what has already taken place in the South, these wise and wide-awake sentiments were never more apt and timely than now. Jerry Mitchell spent the last year taking a really deep dive into a very unforgiving subject, Mississippi prisons. And Mississippi prisons, no surprise, are terrible places. Jerry Mitchell spent the past year plus investigating what goes on behind prison walls in that state, investigating the beatings and stabbings and gangster guards and families being made to pay protection money to keep their loved ones safe in prison and drugs and smuggling and all of it, all this very dark stuff. 
But one thing Jerry Mitchell noticed as he went about his work was not just that the situation inside the prison system was bad, it was also sort of weird. There seemed to be something strange about what was going on, and it seemed to have to do with the guy at the very top of the system. The guy who'd been at the top of that system longer than anyone in state history. Something was just off. Here's an example of what was off. Back in 2012, a federal judge ruled in a lawsuit that one specific Mississippi prison was, quote, a cesspool of unconstitutional and inhuman acts and conditions. 2012. The very next year, that same prison got a perfect score, a perfect 100% rating from the American Corrections Association. Well, you know what? Turns out the head of the American Corrections Association, which gave this cesspool of a Mississippi prison a perfect 100% score, the head of the American Corrections Association was also the head of the Mississippi prison system. Commissioner Christopher Epps said at the time, quote, achieving 100% of standards is very difficult. I am extremely proud. So Jerry Mitchell reported on stuff like that for the Clarion Ledger. And the commissioner pushed back against Jerry Mitchell and against this paper for printing those stories. He said Mississippi prisons had gotten perfect scores before he became president of this trade group handing out the perfect scores. We're always perfect. But still, but that was the kind of thing that was weird, right? The commissioner getting an award from himself for this very, very troubled prison. And Jerry Mitchell kept digging. And I'm, I'm not sure even he had an inkling of how huge this story was about to get. First and six, the state's prison boss facing bribery and money laundering charges. 16WABD's Tammy Eswick is live at the federal courthouse with this corrections corruption case. Tammy. Yeah, that's right, ladies. This was a huge investigation. Everyone from the FBI, the IRS, the state auditor's office, that's just to name a few. Now, all are accusing the former head of the state prison system and a former lawmaker of a huge bribery conspiracy. MDOC Commissioner Christopher Epps quiet on bribery and conspiracy charges. Uh, I think my lawyer will let the state. We, at this point, we just got the indictment. Uh, it's, a, it's an extensive document. We really have no comment, and the commissioner is not going to make any comment. Federal prosecutors just unsealed an indictment months in the making against Commissioner Christopher Epps, the Mississippi Department of Corrections. Dozens of federal felony charges. Federal prosecutors say he's been collecting bribes and kickbacks from a local businessman uh, who has ties to companies that were given contracts to run parts of the prison system. The scale of this thing is actually epic. All told, the companies that are allegedly involved in this scheme have taken in close to a billion, billion with a B dollars, a billion dollars in Mississippi. That comes out to almost $200 for each person in Mississippi. The indictment alleges the commissioner got his share in increments of several thousand dollars at a time. According to prosecutors, the commissioner told the businessman guy after one contract, quote, I got us $12,000 a month, which they then allegedly divided evenly after accounting for the taxes that the businessman would owe on his part of it. So I guess that part would be legal because he'd pay the taxes on his half. Prosecutors said the commissioner shook that businessman down for a condo on the Mississippi coast. They say the commissioner then shook him down again for a larger, more expensive condo a couple of towns over. Mostly, though, as you read through these 49 felony counts, you get the sense that the commissioner seems to have preferred cash. So much cash that he couldn't figure out how to keep anybody from noticing that he was awash in bills. Look at this. This is from count one of the indictment, and we mapped it out as best we could. Look, quote, on July 30th, 2009, the commissioner deposited $9,000 cash at the Regions Bank 
uh, Regions Branch Bank in Flowood, Mississippi at 2.16 p.m. Fifteen minutes later, he deposited $9,000 cash at the Bank Plus in Flowood. Twenty-two minutes after that, he deposited $9,000 cash at the Regions Bank in Jackson. And then he deposited, quote, $9,000 cash at the Mississippi Public Employees Credit Union in Jackson. Honey, I'll be back in an hour. I have to go stash $36,000 in cash at four different banks. Commissioner Epps resigned uh, on Wednesday from his job as the state prisons commissioner and as the president of the trade group that gave himself the perfect score. He and the businessman guy pleaded not guilty yesterday. The commissioner now faces 368 years in prison. And I believe that would be federal prison, not Mississippi cesspool prison. The governor of Mississippi today announced a full review of prison contracts in the state now that nearly a billion taxpayer dollars are alleged to be tangled up in this scheme with the bribes and the kickbacks. And there's a lot of questions to answer about this 49-count indictment, which includes not just the commissioner who allegedly took all the bribes and the kickbacks, but this businessman who's a former judge and a former legislator who's charged with paying him all the bribes and the kickbacks in order to get the business from the prison system. Abolition. Abolition. That was crazy. So that was part two of I declared the so-called Emancipation Proclamation a stupendous fraud. And you also heard clips about the Mississippi prison scandal from uh, Rachel Maddow regarding uh, former Department of Corrections Commissioner Christopher Epps. Just in case you're wondering, the song "Oh Freedom" that's the Golden Gospel Singers. It's you've heard it quite a few times so far. Uh, Max, you know this guy Epps was was a piece of work. Yeah, I reported on it live uh, while I was on hosting other another radio program, um, and uh, just watched it all unfold. And I followed up on it afterwards too. A couple pieces of information that are interesting. On the day mm-hmm. um, that we were there where the flag came down, they had snipers up on the roof in the state right. house, literal snipers. And I remember tribal pointing out that one of them was just aiming it at me and following me around, pointing his gun at me. I was only a hair's breadth away from being assassinated by the state. All he had to do was pull the trigger. But he damn sure had it. Uh, aimed at me as I was walking around and talking with people like uh, Mickey Finney. So that was one thing. And also, the speech that we gave was in front of a, it's a Diaz, right? And on this Diaz is the four states or the four nations where the Africans of South Carolina came from primarily, the Congo, mm-hmm. Senegal, Sierra Leone, and Ghana. So these four stones from those nations are there as part of this monument, and then there's a map showing the path which they took from those countries coming to America. So the ancestors were filling us as we were there, you know what I mean? Like we were directly connected right. to them while we were doing that. Um, and in the beginning, you already heard where he, you know, Frederick Douglass is breaking down how people want to hear good news, but not today. <laughs> today, you're going to learn today right. this is bad, and it doesn't get any worse. Um, and then with the, the Mississippi scandal, let's keep let's get some perspective here. Mm-hmm. That was the entire state 
it wasn't one prison, the entire state, and it's very likely going gone beyond the entire state because part of the investigation that the FBI and the DOJ had put on included also Louisiana, Alabama, and South Carolina because the companies that Christopher Epp was giving no contract bids to were also supplying the same type of services in these other states. Right. So uh, what we're talking about is there was news reports of meat with rat poison in it, uh, meat with maggots in it, uh, of them starving the inmates. Remember, Mississippi is the home of Parchment Prison, where they literally used convict leasing. It's like, you know, right. yeah, it's a horrible, horrible place on earth. And then he was pocketing all the money from the food. Yeah. I think he got they, it paying a dollar a day or something like that. And he pocketed uh, among all other the things. money. Yeah. Something written in the law said he could keep the money. The uh, judges that came in described this place as a cesspool of human conditions. You know? Um, and this then he was the head of the American Corrections Association. And it went from being accessible one year to being perfect the next year. And the dude he was working with, the businessman, was uh, a white guy. If you look it up, you'll find all the information. I don't have it all available in front of me right now. But he was also a former judge, a former judge mm-hmm. and a former legislator. So his whole record they should have been examining. And I think they did. Um, I haven't heard much from the investigation since they sentenced Christopher Epps, the black guy. And all the rest of the people I haven't heard anything about, about. right? Yeah, the commissioner was a black guy. This was Christopher Epps Mm -hmm. selling his own people out, putting them through these horrible conditions in order to justify his death uh, through human lives to make himself wealthy and stupid going from bank to bank, putting in 9000 so the IRS don't uh, get pinged when you put in 10000 And then, you know, getting property. How much is these condos worth? A million, two million, three million? You know what I mean? Uh, right. So he, yeah, it, it's a huge thing. It's more than a scandal. This should have stood out and we should have called out the National Guard in order to protect the people of Mississippi and to find out who and who isn't really guilty in these prisons. Who's just in there because you needed bodies? Because that's what they were doing, just filling the prisons with bodies so that they could provide these no-contract bids to feed the bodies that they get paid to feed. It's horrible. And to this day, it's still uh, unfinished. Eight years later. Yusuf? Eight years later. Yeah, nothing's changed in that eight years. It's It's still the same corruption going on it's still the same uh inhumane conditions going on nothing's changed Uh, down there god bless jerry mitchell he won uh, a major award for that too as well um and you know rachel maddow was saying how the company made a billion dollars which is the equivalent of 200 dollars per person for everybody in mississippi a billion dollars and that reminded me of what happened in Pennsylvania with the two judges there who were selling kids to a for-profit private right. prison. They made a billion dollars in profit. But the conclusion in that one was the two judges ended up in prison. One is free already after only a few years. They had him out on a COVID sympathy thing. Uh, he was supposed to be doing 17 years, I believe. He ended up doing like four or five, and now he's out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the company, which I believe the name of the company was Merkel, 
only had to pay an $80 million fine. They made a billion dollars and spent $80 million to get it. I think that was a good day for them, uh, yeah, you know? That's, and at least, yeah, that's good business. That's good them. business to them, right. If they could do this over and over and over again, they're winning. Um, and at least one of the kids, up to 5,000 that they had sent to these juvenile detention facilities, had committed suicide, much like Khalif Browder. Um, and it was a white, young white kid that did it. And that blew a lot of people's uh, minds and, and, and made a lot of people mad. Uh, but it was 5,000, as many 5,000 kids that they sold into slavery where a business in America bought human beings and paid judges to funnel the flesh into their facilities. If Frederick wasn't talking about that, then what really was he talking crazy. about? <laughs> you know? It fits right in line. Yeah, it fits right in line with what he was talking about. Exactly. Right in line uh, with it. Let's take a moment. If anybody wants to comment or make a question, remember to press 1 on your keypad. Uh, the number is 688-760. Oh, wait. Sorry. No, the number is... I'm reading, <laughs> I'm reading the wrong number. Hey, what number is yeah. Max talking about? Yes, I know, I know, I know, I know. All right. Uh, 515-605-9814. 515-605-9814. And press 1 on your keypad. Uh, yeah, man, uh, as I said earlier, I felt like I leveled up with this because I had read it before, but during this reading, I felt it, you know, like I, I mm -hmm. felt his feelings and tried to put myself in his shoes or what he had saw and understood. <clears throat> and it, <clears throat> it was very, very powerful. Um, and it was personal for him because of all of the energy he, he, he put into the abolitionist movement. And, his life for it, you know, right? I, I, I imagine that there was the one point where he was like, wow, we were able to get slavery abolished. And then he start going around the country and he starts seeing, what is this? And as we heard Dr. Chase talking about, this is something that was far worse. Something that we, we know how horrible chattel slavery was so they had to imagine someone saying something was worse worse than slavery right like parchment prison in mississippi um you know for instance like angola prison in louisiana uh, right. these were places when, uh, that immediately went to convict leasing right the, the audio we got from tim and bob talking about the conditions down there i see we got a caller i think it's is it Corinne? Yeah. Uh, welcome to Abolition Today, Corinne. Uh, join the conversation with us. I, I didn't think I was interrupting you. I'm sorry. I thought you were done, Yusuf. Oh, no. No, I was done. Corinne, do you have a question oh, or a comment? Yeah. I just wanted to comment to remind Vermonters that we send our prisoners to Mississippi. And sometimes Vermonters can think that, oh, because we don't have a lot of prisoners or we don't have a dragon of prison and mass incarceration, which I found out listening to Abolition Today is not in the dictionary. Thanks for letting me know that, Max. That's crazy. But anyways, Vermonters, we don't, uh, we send all of our prisoners or long-term prisoners to Mississippi, so we might not have a dragon in state, but we're feeding a even monstrous dragon down there. So I just yeah. wanted to put that out there for the Vermont listeners to remember such a fact. And there's a few hundred people that are being sent down there to this torture where they never committed a crime in Mississippi from Vermont. 
And why? Right. Uh, because of the for-profit prison contract that they have down there. And so they're committing both human trafficking and slavery and crimes against humanity by violating people's Eighth Amendment rights. Uh, horrible conditions. So, yeah, Frederick had it on point, um, talking about what they were doing then, which has only really expanded to what we see today. And you'll, you'll hear a lot more in his speech throughout this evening and next week when we do the second part. Uh, what do you think so far yeah. of what you've heard, Corinne? That's all great stuff. I'm learning a lot about um, Frederick Douglass and James Brown, too. John Brown, sorry. John Brown. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> because they were friends, and they were, they all needed each other. So. Uh, yeah. And, you know, like what's really – powerful uh, about this particular speech is that there's only two people in America if they said, you know, the emancipation was a fraud. You should believe them. Who would those two people be? Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Because they were the two main bodies behind it coming into being. Uh, so here we have the man who gave his whole life for this telling you that it was a fraud and breaking down exactly how. Um, we're going to play more of it throughout the evening, so I think we can go ahead and take our music break a few minutes earlier. What do you think, Yusuf? I'm all for it. All right. I'm all for uh, it. We'll take our music break. It's a clip from Say Real singing Frederick's song, Freedom. You're listening to Abolition, Abolition Today as uh, we play the speech, I denounce the so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud. We'll be right back after this. Abolition at the day. It's not the light we need, but fire, fire. Not the gentle shower, but thunder, thunder. We need the storm. We need the trouble. We need the whirlwind. The earth to rumble. Without a struggle, there can be.
Welcome back to Abolition Today with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. You just heard Say Real, Frederick's song, Freedom. And, you know, she touches on, you know, one of my favorite parts of the speech, you know, so much so that I've memorized the whole segment of it where she talk, where, uh, <laughs> Frederick talks about if there's no struggle, there is no progress. And I can't wait till that part comes up because it is so powerful what he says in there, especially when he starts talking about, you know, that you have people who want to uh, – who want crops without plowing the land, or they want rain without thunder and lightning. And I was like, man, he's just dropping it right there. So yeah, uh, That's a different yeah. speech in this one, though. But, yeah, you're right. She put it all together in that song, his various quotes, and it was beautiful. From Say Real, uh, one of my favorite songs, um, broke it down. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm getting my speeches mixed up. That's the uh, West India uh, Emancipation speech. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, another, another was, one that we may have to break down. <laughs> uh, we're going to do it along the line. Frederick is a favorite of mine. He really, as I said, had the 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 best perspective in all its complexity of what was happening. You know, he had been a slave, and he was at the heart of the entire movement, including uh, what John Brown did, including what Harry Tubman did, including. Uh, with many of the abolitionists on the Underground Railroad and beyond, because you even heard him in the speech talking about their immigration schemes, right? <laughs> and and that, that was the Underground Railroad and how he was supporting. I remember in his uh, biography we played on the show, and he told the story about how the fugitive slave laws had finally been defeated. And it wasn't through the courts. It was because black people started killing those who were chasing them down. Um, and trying to enslave them. And I remember he said he had a couple of guesses at his house um, in New York uh, as they tried to make their way to Canada. And he could not bring himself to see them as murderers, but as freedom fighters fighting for their very lives, which they were. Right. And after that happened a few times, they were like, no, we don't want to do this shit no more. <laughs> we don't want to, they'd be killing you. No, I ain't going out there doing that. But that was what he said. Right. There was a part of the speech that I read just earlier I did want to repeat because I, I, you just need to really in, feel this. He said, it's well said that a people may lose its liberty in a day and not miss it for half a century and that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And in my judgment, with my knowledge of what has already taken place in the South, these wide and wise and wide awake sentiments were never more apt and timely than now. And he said, I have assisted in fighting one battle for the abolition of slavery, and the American people have shed their blood in defense of the Union and the Constitution, and neither I nor they should wish to fight this battle over again. See, the potential is there because it's the same thing. And he said, and in order that we may not, we should look the facts in the face today, if possible, nip the evil in the bud. And we didn't. We buried his speech. Don't no school right. children ever hear this. Ain't no academics out there telling you he said these things. They don't even know themselves. Right. Right. Don't even know themselves. Because you and I have been places and we've spoken with the so-called academics. Remember when we were in Ohio? And here's the woman. She's the director of the African-American uh, uh, Martin Museum. Luther King African-American uh, yeah. Center. Yeah, museum and 
And we start talking about slavery, and she's like, oh, they, they got slavery? They got they dragging people around in chains? 13th Amendment? I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, director. Um, wow. Well, I hope you're, uh, as a listener, and for those of future listeners, are uh, getting as much out of this as I hope you will, uh, understanding. I believe that this speech, and you can get it right from our website on Abolition Today, um, is a must-read. Like, you really, if you're going to be an activist, you want to understand what's going on, or you just want to get an opportunity to see reality for a change, read it, uh, It's particularly for abolitionists. If you haven't read this, um, then I don't know what's wrong with you. Start reading it as soon as possible uh, so you understand. But you can listen to it today and get to feel it, <laughs> you know? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, remember the number is 515-605-9814. Press 1 on your keypad if you have a question. You want to go ahead and start with the next one? Oh, yeah. So this is going to be part two of Max Max's section reading the I declare the so-called Emancipation Proclamation as a stupendous fraud. And this section is called Recession-Proof for-profit prisons. You listen to the Abolition Today abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. We'll be right back after this track. Abolition. Abolition. Today. in fighting one battle for the abolition of slavery, and the American people have shed their blood in defense of the Union and the Constitution, and neither I nor they should wish to fight this battle over again. And in order that we may not, we should look, to, we should look at the facts in the face today and, if possible, nip the evil in the bud. I have no taste for the role of an alarmist. If my wishes could be allowed to dictate my speech, I would tell you something quite the reverse of what I now intend. I would tell you that everything is lovely with the Negro in the South. I would tell you that the rights of the Negro are respected and that he has no wrongs to redress. I would tell you that he is honestly paid for, that he is honestly paid for his labor, that he is secure in his liberty, that he is tried by a jury of his peers when accused of a crime, and that he is no longer subject to lynch law that he has freedom of speech, that the gates of knowledge are open to him, that he goes to the ballot box unmolested, that his vote is duly counted and given its proper weight in determining results. I would tell you that he is making splendid progress in the acquisition of knowledge, wealth, and influence. I would tell you that his bitterest enemies have become his warmest friends, that the desire to make him a slave no longer exists anywhere in the South, that the Democratic Party is a better friend to him than the Republican Party, and that each party is competing with the other to see which can do the most to make his liberty a blessing to himself and to the country and to the world. But in telling you all this, I should be telling you what is absolutely false. And what you know to be false, and the only thing which would save such a story from being a lie would be its utter inability to deceive. What is the condition of the Negro at the South at this moment? Let us look at both 
in the light of facts and in the light of reason. To understand it, we must consult nature as well as circumstances, the past as well as the present. No fact is more obvious than the fact that there is a perpetual tendency of power to encroach upon weakness and of the crafty to take advantage of the simple. This is a natural as for smoke to ascend or water to run down. The love of power is one of the strongest traits in the Anglo-Saxon race. This love of power common to the white race has been nursed and strengthened at the South by slavery. America's financial crisis has been something of an unsatiable monster, swallowing up millions of jobs, homes, and businesses throughout the nation. Yet amid this ongoing economic Armageddon, one industry has remained recession-proof. Private prisons. With more than 2.3 million people behind bars, the United States trumps China, Russia, and the rest of the world in both the number and percentage of people doing time. Where it falls short, though, is being capable of containing such a large population. It's a political dilemma turned cash cow for dozens of corporations creaming profits off punishment. Private prisons make money off of incarceration. The more people they lock up and the longer they keep them, the more money they make. So they have the same perverse incentive to expand our justice system and increase our number of people, our number of citizens who are behind bars because it increases their profit margin. The profitability of private jails depends on the prison population continuing to go up. The rate of incarceration in the U.S. has quadrupled since the 80s when America's war on drugs ushered in the three strikes policy, which ties judges to mandatory minimum sentencing, even for nonviolent offenders. Since the late 80s and into the 90s and now today, um, we see a turn away from that rehabilitative model. So across the country, prison programming is cut, rehabilitation is being cut, um, there's less opportunities for education, to gain work skills, and instead there's just this drive towards isolation, towards punishment. Private prison companies are paid between $45 and $130 a day per detainee. Rates for juveniles, women, and immigrants could be higher. While public prisons are accountable to the public, private ones answer only to shareholders and are not subject to external scrutiny. That means many private contractors face few consequences for the poor or even inhumane treatment of detainees. We just see you know, more and more isolation, sensory deprivation, prisoners who literally never interact with human beings. When guards would come into the facility, there would be a sign out front with their stock price uh, to let them know how the company was doing. Corrections Corporation of America and GO Group are the two largest private prison companies with combined revenues of $2.9 billion last year. But critics say they've been using that financial clout to line their own pockets even further, encouraging politicians to keep going with a heavy-handed sentencing program by launching an influential lobby campaign in the corridors of power. Lobbying in, in order to influence public officials is only a small part of the private prison industry's effort uh, to achieve policy change. Others include campaign donations. So the companies make hundreds of thousands of dollars of donations to politicians nationwide, both on the federal and state levels. With most states and the federal government currently operating under record deficits and budget cuts, private prison companies are pitching their facilities as lower-cost alternatives. And while most Americans 
continue struggling during this economic downturn, mass incarceration may grow even more profitable. Marina Fortnaya, RT News. We're back on Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan, and that was part two of the, I declare, the so-called Emancipation Proclamation, a stupendous fraud, and that section was entitled Recession Proof For-Profit Prisons. So, first and foremost, not mass incarceration, as, you know, they kept mentioning there. We want to make sure that we keep driving that point home. This is slavery. This is the slave trade. We can make thousands of comparisons as to how it's the same. The only difference is really the actors. It's state-sponsored as opposed to the individual. That's the only real difference. Uh, Also, that there's no – you're not born into it, you know, so – those are the only real differences, Max. Well, there's a few uh, that stand out for sure. Yeah, um, yeah there's but, a few. But... Yeah, you're not born into slavery. It's not like chattel slavery where that's your couch and that couch becomes your son or daughter's couch and then it becomes their son or daughter's couch. That's not how it works. Um, now, it's you're born under conditions where you could become a slave for a period of time, sometimes for the rest of your life. Uh, you become right. property of the state, and one in three young black men are expected to become property of the state in their lifetime. That's where we're at right now. I believe for our white counterparts, it's like one in 17 or one in 18 or something like that. And we're at one in three, and I know those stats are correct, if not even more in some places. In Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for instance, uh, more than, more than one in two Young black men are expected to spend time in a Wisconsin prison before they're 30 years old. More than one in two. Yeah. With, he talking about over 50%. Up, one in 17? I think we're one uh, in 17 in the population? Well, that's just for blacks. For black males, it's half that. Right. No, no, no. Yeah. I meant uh, the black proportion of the state. I think they uh, are... 17 to 1, whites outnumber blacks in the state. I don't have that data in front of me at the moment. Yeah, I I believe it's something. 17 to 1 or 19 to 1, but yet 50% Uh, chance of going to prison. I I think you're talking about the rates of incarceration per 100,000. And out in Wisconsin, I think it was around 14 to 1. So for every uh, one white person that is... uh, is arrested and incarcerated per 100,000. Mm-hmm. It's 14 black people. It's Which crazy. Crazy. And, and this is crazy. what he was talking about in the speech, man. He says, you know, he pointed out, he says uh, that he, he would tell you that his bitterest enemies had become his warmest friends, that the desire to make him a slave no longer exists anywhere in the, U, in, in the South. But he said that that's not the case. It's the exact opposite. That's what they're trying to do, recreate slavery. And they've already laid right. the groundwork 
from 1777 up till now to spring this on us and use it against us. And within less than three decades, it had become the law of the land and how everything went. If you need some workers, go on and rescue some Negroes. Put them in the prisons like in Parchment and Angola, and then they have a 10-year lifespan. That's how long you were expected to, to live if you got sent to the mines or the railroads or even back to the plantations where you had just been a slave. And then we know one dies, get another. One dies, get another, right. One no, dies, that was, get another. Mancini. That was the uh, Jay Mancini, right, um, Jay Mancini's book. Right. Uh, convict leasing in the American South, 1965 to 1928. Uh, but convict leasing went out even past 1928. We know that. And so did debtors' prisons. Right. They're still going on right now. As a matter of fact, there's a couple of news clips I got that I want to share about that. Uh, for instance, the one that's happening in Massachusetts where uh, lawmakers have proposed a bill to allow prisoners to donate their organs or their bone marrow for reduced sentences. But how reduced are we talking? Uh, you know, 10 years, 20 years? I mean, you're giving up a liver, right? You're giving up a kidney, right? Uh, it's got to be at least worth 10 years. No, six months to a year. This is like something out of a dystopian horror movie, man. Like, you, right. you want people to sell you their body parts. Right. It's crazy, man. And that's happening in America right now, in Massachusetts. And there was another one where this new film coming out by Colin Kaepernick um, is on Hulu. I think it's Killing, Killing County, I think it's called. Killing County. Yeah, Killing County. Um, and it, 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 it's, I've seen some of the clips of it, and it looks like it's going to be very powerful. It's, um, sac- I believe it's like out in Sacramento County, right, in Northern California. Uh, where they had these high California, whatever county is uh, Kevin McCarthy. Um, okay, yeah, and, and when I saw they had this one police chief on who was talking to his officers and explaining to them that it is less expensive, cheaper to kill your uh, suspects than to cripple them. And uh, from what I was hearing on this, they had the, they had the highest rate of police killings there in this county. And this is the type of indoctrination that police officers were receiving, uh, officers having multiple body counts going on. So that's something right. I'm going to see if I can watch that. And uh, current, current I do, County, K-E-R-N. Current County, yeah. And, and then, you know, they mock us. Like, the thing with the – there's a cop car that they put together that has Black History Month decals all over the freaking cruiser, the police cruiser. Um, it's in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, you said, tell them about this, man. I, it's just... Yeah, so evidently we have uh, Columbus, Ohio, and Miami have these police cruisers that are decorated with all kinds of black history... I don't want to say memorabilia, regalia. That's the word that I really want to use. Black history regalia. And the first time I read the article and saw the pictures, I'm like, you know, they make it seem like this is like some joyful ride a person would take if they were put in the back of the car. Mm. I got a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. on it talking about be the peace you wish to see in the world. 
And this right. after having the, the, the highest rate of killings in U.S. Uh, history since we been, began documenting these police murders. Just like last year. They, Be the peace you wish yeah. to see in the world. Right. Oh, and my God. Columbus, they called the vehicle History One. That's the name of the vehicle. And they say the cruiser is aimed to celebrate the achievements of African Americans and recognize their roles in our history. This is according to a tweet put out by the Columbus uh, uh, Division of Police. Just, yeah, I, don't, I don't know what they were it's thinking. It's outrageous to think about that. It's mockery. It's mocking us. Listen, I don't know if you know it as a listener, but there has never been a time in the history of this country where either the slave catchers or the police who, who came after them were our friends. There has never been a time where they were on our side. Never been a time where they fought for us. Never been a time where they stood for us, at least not collectively. Uh, so I don't get this. Why would you even do that? You know, you, are you advertising your role as slave catchers? Because that is black history, right? So slave catchers, black right. slave catchers, black people killing black people, black people hunting black people. I guess that's black history too, right? And that's what it looks like to us. So, you know, get that shit out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you hit it on the head with that one, Max. Get that out of here, man. Yeah. Tell your story walking, as we used to say back in the day. So yes, exactly. we have, what do we have, two more parts left? Yes, uh, two more parts left. Um, okay, so, so this, you want to get into the next one, or you had more that you wanted to speak on the previous one? No, no, let's follow up after it's played. Okay, so this next part is entitled The Incentivization of Incarceration. And if you're not already mad as hell, you're going to be really mad as hell after this part. You're listening to Abolition Today with Max Parthas, Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan, abolitiontoday.org. We'll be right back. Abolition, Abolition. Today. Today. During 200 years to the unlimited possession of uh, unlimited possession and exercise of irresponsible power, the love of it has become stronger by habit. To assume that this feeling of pride and power has died out and disappeared from the South is to assume a miracle. Any man who tells you that it has died out or has ceased to be exercised and made effective tells you that which is untrue, and in the nature of things could not be true. Not only is love, is the love of power there, but a talent for its exercise has been fully developed. This talent makes the old master class of the South not only the masters of the Negro, but the masters of Congress, and if not checked, will make themselves the masters of this nation. It was something more than an empty boast in the old times, and it was said that one slave master was equal to three northern men. Though this did not turn out to be true on the battlefield, it does seem to be true in the councils of the nation, 
in spite of all the nations these ambitious men of the South had dared to take possession of the government which they broad, with, with broad blades and bloody hands sought to destroy. In spite of all the nation, they have disregarded and trampled upon the Constitution and organized parties on sectional lines, from the ramparts of the solid South with 153 electoral votes in the Electoral College, they have dared to defy the nation to put a Republican in the presidential chair for the next four years, as they once threatened the nation with civil war if it elected Abraham Lincoln. With this grip on the presidential chair, with the House of Representatives in their hands, with the Supreme Court deciding every question in favor of the states as against the powers of the federal government, denying to the government the right to protect the elective franchise of its own citizens, they may not well feel themselves masters, not only of their former slaves, but of the whole situation. With these facts before us, tell me not that the Negro is safe in the possession of his liberty. Tell me not that power will not assert itself. Tell me not that they who despise the Constitution, they have sworn to support, will respect the rights of the Negro, whom they already despise. Tell me not that men who thus break faith with God will be scrupulous in keeping faith with poor Negro laborers of the South. Tell me not that the people who have lived by the sweat of other men's faces and thought themselves Christian gentlemen while doing it will feel themselves bound by principles of justice to their former victims and their weakness. Such a pretense in face of the facts is shameful, shocking, and sickening. Yet there are men in the North who believe all of this. Well, may it be said that Americans have no memories. We look over the House of Representatives and see the solid South enthroned there. We listen with calmness to eulogies of the South and of the traitors and forget Andersonville. We look over the Senate and see the Senator from South Carolina and we forget Hamburg. We see Robert Smalls cheated out of his seat in Congress and forget the planter and the service rendered by the colored troops in the late war for the Union. Well, the nation may forget. It may shut its eyes to the past and frown upon any who may do otherwise, but the colored people of this country are bound to keep fresh a memory of the past till justice shall be done from them in the present. When this shall be done, we shall, as readily as any other part of our respected citizens, plead for an act of oblivion. We are often confronted of late in the press and on the platform with the discouraging statement that the problem of the Negro as a free man and a citizen is not yet solved, that since his emancipation he has disappointed the best hopes of his friends and fulfilled the worst predictions of his enemies, and that he has shown himself unfit for position assigned him by the mistaken statesmanship of the nation. It is said that physically, morally, socially, and religiously, he is in a condition vastly more deplorable than was his condition as a slave, and that he has not proved himself so good a master to himself as his old master was to him, that he is gradually but surely sinking below the point of industry, good manners, and civilization to which he attained in a state of slavery, that his industry is fitful, that his economy is wasteful, that his honesty is deceitful, that his morals are impure, that his domestic life is beastly, that his religion is fetishism. In his worship, 
It's simply emotional. And that, in a word, he is falling into a state of barbarism. Such is the distressing description of the emancipated Negro as drawn by his enemies, and it is found reported in the journals of the South. Unhappily, however, it is a description not confined to the South. It has gone forth to the North. It has crossed the ocean. I met with, I met with it in Europe, and it has gone as far as the wings of the press and the power of speech can carry it. There is no measuring the injury inflicted upon the Negro by it. It cools our friends, heats our enemies, and turns away from us much of the sympathy and aid which we need and deserve to receive at the hands of our fellow men. But now comes the question. Is this description of emancipated Negro true? In answer to this question, I must say yes and no. It is not true in all its lines and specifications and to the full extent of the ground it covers, but it certainly is true in many of its important features. And there is no race under heaven of which the same would not be equally true with the same antecedents and the same treatment which the Negro is receiving at the hands of this nation and the old master class to which the Negro is still a subject. Well, notice that you've gone in the prison population from 1.5 million to 2 million now. And that's because the facilities, the prison facilities themselves, are motivated to keep the prisoners in jail, not to rehabilitate them, not to avoid recidivism. What they do is they have a, a uh, method where they keep them in longer by adding to their sentence. They'll say if you, if you violate, you know, you, you, in public prisons you get out, get time off for good behavior. They get time on, time added for bad behavior. So they'll push these people, and when they react, they'll give them additional time for bad behavior to hold them in uh, prison longer. So the whole thing is is adding to our our prison population unbelievably. And the worst the worst of all, in my opinion, is what's happening in the juvenile facilities that are run by these private uh, corporations. Uh, the ACLU in Wal sued the Walnut Grove. Uh, GEO-run facility in Mississippi. The juveniles were kicked, punched, while handcuffed. They were stripped naked and placed in solitary confinement for weeks. Can you imagine placing juveniles in solitary confinement for weeks? The, uh, one juvenile was held hostage in his cell for 24 hours. He was brutally raped and assaulted, and prison guards refused to help. They brought a lawsuit uh, against them, and they uh, joined together with the, uh, uh, they joined together with the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, and they got a phenomenal settlement by their, it was a groundbreaking settlement. They got a ruling that juveniles have, have to be housed separately, and that they banned the use of solitary confinement in the case of juveniles. The U.S. Justice Department did a report on this. They studied Mississippi, and they studied these private institutions in Mississippi, they, they found that the state showed deliberate indifference in seven areas, including sexual misconduct between guards and inmates, excessive use of force, excessive use of chemical agents, youth-on-youth -youth violence and sexual assault, and seriously inadequate medical and mental health care facilities. This is on juveniles. And they said, at the conclusion of their report, they said sexual misconduct 
at this juvenile facility was among the worst they've seen in any facility in the United States. It's absolutely horrendous. Absolutely. Howard, thank you for telling us this story. Uh, you know, the, the private prison industry, they're making headlines every day. Uh, I'm glad we finally got to discuss this. And thank you very much for telling us about it. Abolition. That was part three of the, I declared the so-called Emancipation Proclamation as a stupendous fraud, and that was entitled The Incentivization of Incarceration. Now, Max, there's this one part in there that just really, really jumps out at me, where it talks about we are often confronted of late in the press and on the platform with the discouraging statement that the problem of the Negro as a free man and a citizen is not yet solved. And then he goes on talking about how it is said that physically, morally, socially, and religiously, he is in a condition vastly more deplorable than his condition as a slave, that he has not proved himself so good a master to himself as his old master was to him that he is gradually but surely sinking below the point of industry, good manners and civilization to which he attained in a state of slavery. That is, industry is fitful, like he's good for working, but his economy is wasteful, that his honesty is deceitful, that his morals are impure, that his domestic life is beastly, that his religion is fetishism, and his worship is simply emotional, and that, in the word, he is falling into a state of barbarism. You know, just that, and and when he talked about the, the press, this is exactly how we are the, are we we're described in the press all the time. That's right. These exact words are used right there. Um, I was watching a video of a brother that came from Vietnam. He was serving. He had served in Vietnam, and he was telling the stories about how they were calling him nigger in Vietnam. And he said, "I know." Mm-hmm. That these people that can't even speak English never learned that word in their own culture. It was brought to them. This is the story right. they were telling about us while we were fighting for their freedoms. <laughs> you right. know, that I got to go here and somebody in Viet Cong is calling me a nigger. So this narrative, it, it exists today, like the 1315 that they use on us, right, which is uh, wrong math, where they say that. 13% of the population, black people, commit 50% of the violent crimes in this country. But that's not exactly what's happening. What's happening is right. 13% of the population is being arrested for 50% of the crimes in this country. That's what's happening. Whether they're guilty or not is yet to be seen. Right, and then factor in selective prosecution on top of that. Right, who all of these different jail things. And who gets pretrial intervention? And, you know, they talked about that GEO group, too, and Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, we we just heard about the whole scandal in Mississippi. She didn't mention this part about this youth detention facility where there was more sexual assault happening than they had seen anywhere in America in a juvenile facility it was occurring. And it was just complete squalor and horrid, inhumane conditions for children who were being ushered into this juvenile facility. These are the types of things that are modern-day slavery right now. And you're doing it to kids, right. man. 
So that was the Geo Group. And what else is the Geo Group connected with? Vermont. Is that where Vermont sends their people over in Mississippi to the Geo Group's facility? Exactly. They, they even talked about uh, CCA at the time. But remember, you know, when Kanye West came out with that song, New Slaves, it forced the CCA to change its name to Core Civic because it gave them such a bad right. name about what they were doing. Uh, even recently in Tennessee, where their, their headquarters is at, just ending slavery there has caused them so much problems and going to continue to cause them more problems. Right. Core Civic and Geo Group. And the Geo Group um, is one of the largest for profit. It's one of the largest privately owned corporations in the world. Uh, and it just merged with another company. Uh, it had already been associated legally with uh, G4S, which is their equivalent in Europe, right? So they're one right. and the same, basically. And then G4S got bought out by a bigger company. So it's possible the largest prison, the largest privately owned company in the world today might be a freaking prison company. Right. Right. And then you think about all the ones that don't get a lot of the press, like Management and Trading Corporation. That's who McCrory uh, w- was really bringing in to Chris Epps. You McCrory, know, that's that, the name um, of the former judge, former legislator. Right. Right. You know, Management and Training Facility, uh, Training Corporation, they're the ones who build most of these prisons. You know, even they build them for G for GEO Group and for uh, Core Civic. And of course, we covered when we did the uh, the Money Machine, where we really broke down how many of these companies are just tied in, and just to the levels that they're tied into this modern day slave trade. You know, this is yeah. what, this is what we have going on. It's modern day. And the only difference, he just broke it down. He just broke it down. Like everything he just said in this in this section, and he, you know, he, he finished it off when he said, you know, that uh, there's no race under heaven of which the same would not be equally true with the same antecedents and the same treatment which the Negro is receiving at the hands of this nation and the old master class to which the Negro is still a subject. Still a subject even to this day. Um, he also says... And that was 1888. Couple, <laughs> 1888. It was like a prophecy. Cause through these clips, these news clips, you are seeing this manifest now in modern society. What he was explaining then is manifesting now through this uh, prison-for-profit industry that's not limited to for-profit private prisons, the models being duplicated by state entities. The same right. thing is happening. Oh, they were the ones that started it. <laughs> you know what I mean? The for-profit prison companies came out later to get their piece, but the state had already been doing it, so now they're back to it even more than ever. Um, and that's one of the things that Frederick said. He said, Americans, Americans have no memories. Like, we are so, so short-sighted. We, we don't know anything about history. And we have things like alt facts, which he addressed as well, where he said a pretense in the face of facts is shameful, shocking, and sickening. Yet there are men in the North who believe all of this. And that wow. narrative of us being beasts 
and troublemakers just grew across the globe, and we're using it right now, black people. Trump is famous right. for it, right? We're the racists, not him, not them. The black people are the racist. That racist prosecutor, that racist district attorney, Marilyn Mosby, and that racist... The black people are the racist. How we got to that point, I don't freaking know, but apparently they agree. Right. Exactly. All right. So, let's Let's get into our closing segment, and then we'll close out the show with the final part for this week. How does that sound, Max? I I don't know what you mean by closing segment. Oh, you mean uh, lead into our closing segment? Right. Oh, yeah. Lead into part four. That's how we're going to take it out. We're going to take it out with part four this week. Um, And then next week, we're going to do the uh, rest of the series, which features Thomas Washington speaking at the same location, same time. Um, so this is the, the last part of it. Uh, it features Chris Hedges, and it's titled The Debts of Civil Debts. Um, and, uh, man, I don't even know what to say. Frederick has really said it all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's right. not holding back. And he's saying uh, and speaking in a way that you have really never heard him say before, which is with, with that rage and the passion. And he's he's oh, really right. getting ready to drive it home in this next section. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna take it home in the next section, and uh, we want so you to come back next week and check out part two of this too for Black History Month. This is our contribution, or at least the beginning. Uh, normally, as I said, we we Black History every day, <laughs> every week we do it, but we did a little something right. special, so this is it. Yes, and then people can always. Snatch this audio. You now have it. You have it in audio now. Someone reading Frederick Douglass's speech. And this is the first time it's ever been streamed live on a live program. I know that because we're the only ones that put it on video and audio. There is nowhere else you're going to find it like that. So we know it's (laughs) not out there. Right. So I definitely want to. You want to have any closing? Do you have any closing statements, Max? Before I get uh, into our closing briefly, segment, briefly, I want to say thank you to our listeners, as always, and supporters. Wouldn't be us without you. Um, we're glad that you're here to learn out loud along with us, because we're learning too as we move forward with this. And uh, please go to the websites that Yusuf will mention so that you can help us further. Uh, we do need donations, so if you're able to do that, please do so. Thank you, Yusuf. So I definitely would like to thank our sponsors and our partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, Sema Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and the Abolish Slavery National Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash abolition today, and subscribe to our Abolition Today Facebook page, and we also have our Twitter page, that's Abolition Today, the number one. That's our Abolition Today online Twitter page. We're also available on all major podcast platforms. Remember to subscribe to the movement or to join the movement at abolishslavery.us to become part of the solution. It'll send a text. Send a text in the exception to 52886 and follow the prompts. This will sign a signed petition on your behalf 
via congressional reps in support of the proposed 28th Amendment to repeal and replace the exception clause to the 13th Amendment. Definitely go to our Abolition Today page because there's all kinds of news and information that sometimes doesn't even make it into the audio of the program. So you definitely want to check that out. I'll bridge in the gap, as Max said, is the whole program Chris- is bridging the gap. <laughs> Right, the whole, yeah, the whole program. Yeah, this is just the final part for it. That's right. This is the final part, Chris Hedges, The Debts of Civil Death. We'll be back next Sunday, February 12th, God willing, with the continuation of Frederick's I Declare the So-Called Emancipation Proclamation a Stupendous Fraud, and that'll be read by Thomas Washington. So until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace. Abolition. Abolition. I admit that the Negro, and especially the plantation Negro, the tiller of the soil, has made little progress from barbarism to civilization, and that he is in a deplorable condition such as emancipation, that he is worse off in many respects than when he was a slave. I am compelled to admit, but I contend that the fault is not his, but that of his heartless accusers. He is the victim of a cunningly devised swindle, one which paralyzes his energies suppresses his ambitions and blasts all his hopes, and though he is nominally free, he is actually a slave. I here and now denounce this so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud, a fraud upon him, a fraud upon the world. It was not so meant by Abraham Lincoln. It was not so meant by the Republican Party, but whether so meant or not, it is practically a lie. Keeping the word of the promise to the ear and breaking it to the heart. Do you ask me why the Negro of the plantation has made so little progress, why his cupboard is empty, why he flutters in rags, why his children run naked, and why his wife hides herself behind the hut when a stranger is passing? I will tell you, it is because he is systematically and universally cheated out of his hard earnings. The same class that once extorted his labor under the lash now gets his labor by a mean sneaking and fraudulent device. The device is a trucking system which never permits him to see or save a dollar of his hard earnings. The struggles and struggles like, but like a man in a morass, the more he struggles, the deeper he sinks. The highest wage paid him is $8 a month. And this he receives only in orders on the store, which in many cases is owned by his employer. The script has purchasing power on that one store and that one only. A blind man can see the laborer is by this arrangement bound hand and foot and it is in completely in the power of his employer. He can charge the poor fellow what he pleases and give what kinds of goods he pleases and he does both. His victim cannot go to another store and buy and this the storekeeper knows. The only security the wretched Negro has under his arrangement is the conscience of the storekeeper. A conscience educated in the school of slavery. 
with the ideal prevailing in theory and practice that the Negro has no rights which white men were bound to respect, an arrangement in which everything in the way of food or clothing, whether tainted meat or damaged cloth, is deemed good enough for the Negro. For these, he is often made to pay a double price. But this is not all, or the worst result of this system. It puts it out of the power of the Negro to save anything of what he earns. If a man gets an honest dollar for his day's work, he has a motive for laying it by and saving it for future emergency. It will be good as good, it will be as good for us in the future, and perhaps better a year hence from now. But this miserable script has in no sense of the quality of a dollar. It is only good at one store and for a limited period. Thus the man who has it is tempted to get rid of it as soon as possible. It may be out of date before he knows it, or the storekeeper may move away and it may be left worthless on his hands. But this is not the only evil involved in the satanic arrangement. It promotes dishonesty. The Negro sees himself paid for limited wages, far too limited to support himself and family, and that in its worthless script, and he is tempted to fight the devil with fire. Finding himself systematically robbed, he goes to stealing, and as a result finds his liberty, such as it is, taken from him. And him himself put to work for a master in a chain gang, and he comes out, if he ever comes out, a ruined man. Every northern man who visits the old master class, the landowners and landlords of the south, is told by the old slaveholders with a great show of virtue that they are glad that they are rid of slavery and would not have the slave system back if they could, that they are better off than they ever were before and much more of the same tenor. Thus northern men have come home duped and go on a mission of duping others by telling them the same pleasing story. There are very good reasons why these people would not have slavery back if they could, because far more creditable to their cunning than to their conscience, with slavery they had some care and responsibility for the physical well-being of their slaves. Now they have a, as firm a grip on the freed man's labor as when he was a slave, and without any burden of caring for his children or himself. The whole arrangement is stamped with fraud and is supported by hypocrisy, and I hear, and now, on this Emancipation Day, denounce it as a villainous swindle, and invoke the press, the pulpit, and the lawmaker to assist in exposing it and blotting it out forever. Well, few Americans truly understand our prison system. Even fewer realize that within the walls of prisons across America, an entire workforce has been developed, one that works for third world wages and actually accrues massive amounts of debt, debt that can send someone back to prison even if they've served their time. Earlier this week, I spoke with author and journalist Chris Hedges, and I began by asking him to give me a basic understanding of some of these misconceptions that we have about America's prison complex. We have 25% of the world's prison population, 5% of the world's population. Um, so prisoners under the 13th Amendment uh, essentially work as in a form of neo-slavery for about $1.30 a day. Uh, we are seeing huge numbers of for-profit corporations from Chevron to Victoria's Secret to Target to Hewlett-Packard uh, use or exploit uh, prison labor. Uh, we have seen private corporations now become predatory within prison walls. Uh, phone companies charging 15 cents a minute 
forcing you to prepay your plans with very high surcharges. Uh, you know, you pay ten dollars, you got to pay three dollars to the phone company. Uh, the privatization of commissaries, where prices have risen by over 100 percent. I have a list of the 1996 commissary prices in New Jersey and the ones today. Uh, and uh, things have, uh, in almost every case, at least doubled. I mean, for instance, uh, if you want to buy an envelope, they sell them singularly. Uh, it costs you 15 cents. Uh, if you buy a 100 pack of uh, legal size envelopes, it's $7. That, of course, is more than double in price. Uh, fines that are uh, levied uh, at the time of sentencing, that, and remember, these people are making $28 a month. Uh, they're working eight hours a day. Uh, it takes them forever to pay their fines off. Uh, let, let me jump the, in there for a second because yeah. um, I, I want to get some details on some of this. You're giving me a lot of information, but let's go back for a minute to what you said about corporations, major corporations in, in the United States. And you give a long list here, including Starbucks, right. AT&T, Microsoft, right. Procter & Gamble, Wendy's. How are those corporations using the prison populations as a workforce? How does that happen? Well, they move behind prison walls. Uh, we have most of, uh, you know, military uniforms, uh, vests, canteens, all of which is made by federal prisoners. Um, you know, this is, it's forced labor, uh, and it's massive, and it, it's extremely profitable, uh, which is part of the problem uh, of mass incarceration, because we have corporations and the lobbyists for those corporations writing these draconian laws to keep people locked behind bars for decades for crimes that, uh, in other countries, they might not even be arrested for. I mean, half of the prison population never committed a violent crime. Right, um, they're, they're nonviolent crimes. But let me ask you this. You say that uh, a prisoner in New Jersey, for instance, back in 1980, for eight hours of work, was paid $1.20. And today, right. that same prisoner makes $1.30 for eight right. hours of work. And you also mentioned right. that uh, you know, the other standards that we would have in terms of uh, protections for um, workers, um, workplace safety requirements, none of those things are applicable here. Right, and you now have prison administrators going to large corporations that are running sweatshops overseas and saying, come back. Um, you know, they can't organize. Uh, you don't have to pay benefits. Uh, they, they earn, you know, 20 cents, 15 cents an hour. Um, you know, they're always on time for work, and if they're ever disruptive, we put them in isolation. Right, so it's easy to control that, that workforce population. Something else you might mention here, you talk about the fact that these phone companies, for instance, will come in and, and the kinds of things they do here in order to uh, derive huge profits uh, from prisoners who are, are being held um, include things like <clears throat> placing um, extremely high commissions by state agencies uh, on right. those phone charges. They have all kinds of kickbacks on here that we in the regular public would never tolerate or put up with, and this happens to prisoners again as you said, who are making $28 a month, and it's happening right. in every prison in America? Right. And, and these, I mean, that's why states have allowed these corporations to go in, because the kickbacks can run as high as uh, 40%. So you have a captive market. I mean, you have a for-profit company running the commissary. Um, there's nowhere else to shop. I mean, they set the prices, whatever it is. Uh, you know, and then there are all sorts of draconian fees. If you have for instance, in New Jersey, uh, a loved one, an immediate family member who is dying or is dead, uh, you can get a 15-minute deathbed visit or a 15-minute viewing, uh, but you get charged up to $900 uh, to pay the guards. Now, if you're earning $28 a month, you can imagine how long it takes to pay that off. And it used to be 
that uh, families could send up to 50 pounds of like sneakers. You know, that's the other thing. Prisons now are lo no longer providing the most basic items, including footwear. So you've got to buy $45 Reebok sneakers. And if you can't afford it, you've got to take out a loan. Uh, so coupled with these fines, coupled with the loans, and you've got to pay for, to see the doctor, you've got to pay for medicine, you've got to pay for legal copying, everything else, you are now getting large numbers of prisoners who are actually being released heavily in debt, thousands of dollars in debt. There's no work. And if they can't pay that off, they go right back into prison. They're actually sent back to prison for not being able to yeah. pay loans they had to make in prison in order right. to get and the basic necessities they need to live in prison. Well, and let's not forget they're working eight hours a day. And they're not eligible for Social Security. So they, work, they can work 30 years inside the prison, eight hours a day, for a for-profit company. And never uh, and that. They, they fit, and they finish in debt, and, they're not, and because they never paid into Social Security, they're not eligible for Social Security. Chris, last thing I want to cover with you, your article here ends with a very sobering um, idea. It talks about the fact that when strong family ties are retained by prisoners, that the recidivism rate is so much lower. And, and we all know that for a fact, that when family gets involved, if you want to lower that recidivism rate, uh, you do so uh, by involving family. And you talk about the fact that these prisons are now working very hard to keep families from visiting loved ones right. who are locked up. And you end by saying this, you say prisoners with life sentences frequently urge loved ones to sever all ties with them and consider them dead simply because it is a humiliating process now for family members and children to be able to come and visit those who are locked away. Last word on that. Well, I mean, you go into a prison, any prison in this country, first of all, people are waiting outside in the rain and the snow, elderly people, children, mothers with strollers uh, for hours with no access to bathrooms then they are treated as if they are prisoners once they come in. The children are terrified, they're crying. It's so traumatic even to get in and see a family member. Uh, and then on top of that, I think we have to remember that uh, most of the uh, forms of communication between a parent who is incarcerated and their child is over the phone lines, and of course they're gouging them for 15 cents a minute. It's, um, and, and destroying those family ties uh, accelerates the process of recidivism, which is about 64%, uh, and you have for-profit uh, prisons like Correction Corp of America, well, they say on their website, high recidivism rate uh, proves that we're a good investment. Um, you know, there's no forms of rehabilitation anymore. The system is designed to funnel people back into the system because it makes, makes those who run the uh, prison industrial complex a profit. Absolutely. Well, Chris, and I would encourage all of our viewers to go and to read your article over at TruthDig and, and to get into what you just mentioned there as well. The number of investors who are stepping in and now investing in these private prisons because they see the value in it. And again, it's become a very profitable, profitable business. Uh, Chris Hedges, reporter and journalist, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Abolition, abolition. 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 What is it? Slavery. What do we want to hear? Slavery. What are we fighting? Slavery. 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 Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. Abolition. I am an abolitionist. I glory in the name. Though now by slavery's minions hissed and covered o'er with shame. It is a spell of light and power, the watchword.
I do enlist in freedom's sacred cause. A noble strike the world never saw, then If we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cotton. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.